Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. We're here today with a very special guest. Uh, you may know him as the Godfather of Strength and Conditioning. You may know him as Boyd Epley, but I consider him to be a great friend, mentor, and obviously leader and pioneer in our uh, field. So today, what we want to do and the focus of this episode is to really kind of talk about innovation and specifically as it relates to being a leader in the field. And so whether you are the first one at your school to be a strength coach, whether you're trying to push the envelope with collaborations at your school, I thought today would be a great reflection on kind of some of history's moments that maybe you were aware of, or maybe you weren't aware of and kind of spark ideas and insights for you at the individual level. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Coach Epley uh, to the lab today. Coach Epley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it, Tom. Awesome. Awesome. Well, could you just quickly, for those maybe who've been under a rock for the last you know, 40 years, tell, give a quick little history, um, just kind of about your orientation uh, at Nebraska, how it started, um, and just kind of a quick synopsis uh, of what you've done since. Okay. Well, I was a pole vaulter, a scholarship pole vaulter at Nebraska, but I had a back injury. And the doctors indicated that I might not be able to pole vault again for fear of uh, paralyzing my legs or whatever. They couldn't have been more wrong, but that was the case. And so I spent a lot of time in the weight room for a year being redshirted to see if it would get better. And uh, the weight room at Nebraska was a real disappointment. I had come from Arizona where lifting was a little more common. But at Nebraska, they had one Olympic set, one 400-pound set, one squat rack, five dumbbells in a 400-square-foot space. So I would have to go over to the Coliseum where the students lifted and they had a little bit better set up. They actually had lifting classes and um, more normal for college. But when the doctor finally uh, at the end of my redshirt year told me, no, we're not going to let you pole vault anymore. We're afraid that you'd be paralyzed or whatever. We're not going to let that happen. Um, coach Tom Osborne, the assistant to the head coach who was named Bob Devaney, Tom Osborne contacted me and asked if, uh, if I wouldn't mind helping the football players and that they could pay me $2 an hour to do that. That doesn't sound like a lot, but minimum wage at the time was $1.65. So I thought that was a pretty good deal. And uh, I told him, though, the problem was you don't have enough equipment to get three or four players in there at one time. So he said, well, can you make a list? of what we need. So I, I said, I can bring you the list tomorrow. So I brought him the list and it was just some power racks and squat racks and a couple sets of weights, nothing uh, elaborate, just the basics. And I handed him the list and he handed it to the secretary and said, order this. And I smiled and I said, coach, I forgot to bring the second page. And he laughed because he's a pretty sharp cookie. And uh, he said, okay, bring me the second page tomorrow. So I added some pulleys and some dumbbells and, and things that I wouldn't have put on that first list. Came back to him the next day, handed him the list. And he said, now this is it, right? And I said, yeah. He said, all right, now we need to go in and see Bob. And I go, Bob? He says, yes, Bob Devaney. Well, Bob Devaney was the athletic director and probably the most powerful man in the state of Nebraska as the head coach for football. So we go in to see him. And to be honest with you, I don't remember what I said. 
because I was shaken and I was, uh, hadn't graduated from college yet. And I wasn't really any older than the football players. <clears throat> and Tom says, well, Boyd thinks we should have the whole team lift weights. And Bob says, why? He said, I don't know of any school that's lifting weights with their football team. My friend Duffy Doherty at Michigan State, good coach, good program. They don't lift weights. So why would we want to do that? And I was shaken. I don't, I really don't know what I said, but I remember what he said. He said, we're going to give this a try because Tom thinks it's important. But if anyone gets slower, you're fired. Well, I took that statement very seriously. And I realized that if I was going to prove to Coach Devaney that strength training was going to be beneficial to his team, that I would need to test the athletes on some kind of a speed test and show that they actually were getting faster. Because if any of them got slower, I was going to have a problem. So I went back to my PE department chairman, the, um, the chairman of the physical education department, which I was a part of and a student in, and explained to him what was going on and borrowed a stopwatch because the athletic department didn't have one, which was shocking. Or at least I, I didn't know any of them that had one. They, they didn't, to my knowledge anyway. So I got a stopwatch and I set up testing. And uh, I did make a mistake back then as I was testing every couple of weeks on a 40 yard dash, which is a little too often and a little dangerous. But it, uh, and I showed the results to the coaches and they were getting a little bit faster, even though it was every two weeks. So they let me kind of innovate. And um, the program developed into something that was meaningful for, to Nebraska. And we ended up winning five national championships and eventually added the other sports and eventually added women's athletics. And we had a pretty good run at Nebraska. That's pretty incredible. And I mean, you touched on so many things just even in that opening segment. And I want to bring it back to that point of that critical moment, because not only was that about you getting the position at Nebraska, that was the start of an era. And just as you sat with the head coach and they said, well, why would we want to do that? Nobody else is doing that. That still exists today. So sometimes when you're you know, at the tip of the spear and you're the first one out, people want to know, you know, why should we change? And so our field started with some sort of measurement. If you get slower, you're fired. And today, I think a lot of strength coaches are stuck in the middle of, you know, I can only do so much because the coach recruits whoever. And then the X's and O's, so wins and losses for the weight room, you know, for many, many years has been kind of uh, unclear. Are they getting better? Or are they just moving around? Are they actually developing? And so having that testing is interesting to hear that that was what you use as a barometer for the success of your program and not just kind of like uh, was mentioned in another podcast we had with Drew Hammond, where he talked about, it wasn't the program with a capital P, you know, that was the be all end all. You iterated your programs to make sure you got some of those outputs um, that you were looking for. And in your case, it was speed. But how did you go about doing that, building the actual program itself? Because yes, you had testing, but as you've already alluded to, you had to go to another department and you had to start to build your team from a leadership standpoint. How did you go about even starting that? Well, one of my issues was I was about the same age as these athletes. I was maybe one year older than the, the juniors or seniors on the team. I went back to my physical ed education 
talking to Parliament chairman <clears throat> and ask him, how am I going to get these guys to do what they're supposed to? Because lifting weights is not always fun. There's, there's some work involved. <clears throat> and he said, well, you're a member of our physical education department. How about if I make you an instructor? So he set up that I could be the teacher of two classes for weight training and use the athletic weight room to do it. And the, the players would have to register like any other student for a class. I would give them a grade based on their performance in the weight room and attendance. If they didn't attend, they would get a poor grade, which would affect their uh, grade average, which would affect their playing status. And so it, it was uh, a good thing. And I ended up teaching those two classes for 17 years. Wow. Well, was that kind of some of your idea for the, the mentorship that you did, the mentorship program of being able to, you know, evaluate the talent? Because I know that was another thing when I've seen you in person, you're very meticulous in, you know, you mentioned attendance with the students, but I've also seen you carry that over into the weight room of how you develop your strength coaches as well as your athletes. At that point in time, I wasn't so much concerned about mentoring. Uh, I did need help. And it, once word got out, uh, Arkansas hired my very first volunteer assistant. No. <laughs> uh, SMU hired my second. And um, the third one occurred when Coach Osborne retired and, or excuse me, Coach Devaney retired and Coach Osborne took over. One of the offensive line coach who was hoping to be the head coach. And when Osborne got hired, he decided to go to the University of Miami as their new head coach. He had asked me then if I would come to Miami and set up a weight room for them. And so my third assistant got hired to run that weight room. Uh, to keep on with that story, uh, when Ohio State played in the Orange Bowl and they saw that weight room and they saw Steve Bliss, who was the strength coach then just for a short time, Woody Hayes called me and said, uh, I see that Miami has a strength coach there. Do you think I should hire that, that guy? And I said, yes, you should. So Steve became the first strength coach at Miami and the first strength coach at Ohio State. But anyway, my fourth assistant, Mike Arthur, has been with Nebraska ever since and is still at Nebraska as we speak today. But somewhere along the line, I came up with a, an acronym TEST, T-E-S-T. -E and of course, the T stands for testing. And that's something that we've continued to do all these years and is very important. The E in TEST stands for evaluation. So you, you need to really know how to look at the test data. And that has evolved over the years too. The S stands for setting goals because these players, they, they don't just test, they, they react to the scores, whether it's good or bad. And sometimes a bad score will cause them to work harder than if they do real well, they think they're on cruise mode. And so setting goals is a challenge to get people to do it right and to take it seriously. The T in the word test, it talks about the training, the program. It could be a P, but in order to spell test properly, you gotta have a T there, so it's training. I call it training. So the word test becomes a very important word that encompasses all of this thing. And the testing is a big part of evaluating where you are and where you're headed. 
and whether or not your program works. So if you test your athletes and they didn't get any better, you need to go back and look at whether your program had some flaws in it. There's something wrong. Maybe you're training too often. Maybe you're not training enough. Uh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And so keeping it simple to the word test allowed me to have a program that was flexible, but yet on a mission. And it, you know, with working with young athletes, you've got to motivate these kids. They aren't just going to come in and uh, work hard. Once in a while, you get a guy that is motivated from day one. What can I do, coach? Where do I start? How do I do it? But not always. Sometimes they're prima donnas. They've had a great career in high school where they were the guy, maybe not just at their school, but in their state, or even more impressive. Sometimes they're, they think they're Heisman Trophy winners or coming out of high school. So getting a guy like that to work hard uh, doesn't always work. You have to be creative and be able to motivate them to set goals. And uh, so that you know, as you test and then evaluate where they're at, that setting goals becomes important, getting them to buy into your training. So it's kind of complex, but that one word test, T-E-S-T, kind of encapsulates all of it in one word. If we were going to just uh, role play for a minute, say I'm one of your assistants and you told me about this test principle. And so we go up and you know, we look at it, but I come back to you and say, coach, but I'm not a numbers chaser. There's more than just numbers to this job. I have to connect and build a relationship with the athletes. You know, there's so many other aspects to strength and conditioning. I'm not a numbers chaser. I don't really want to do that. How would you handle that? Well, are you first string or are you fourth string or eighth string? Where are you? If you're first string, I might give you a little break and let you have an attitude. But if you're eighth string, you're either going to work or you're gone. What if I'm one of the coaches on your staff, though, and I say that to you? <laughs> Maybe if, if you're one of the coach's sons, I might give you a break. <laughs> but I'll tell you, uh, it was really difficult for me to get all the coaches on board, too. Uh, one of the biggest problems that I had at Nebraska was uh, distance running and the, the concept that how are we going to be in shape for the fourth quarter if we don't run distance? And that is absolutely wrong any school high school or college that has their football players doing distance running is making a huge mistake because a, a football play only lasts between three and five seconds unless somebody breaks loose for 80 yard run or something and that's very rare three to five second burst is what you're looking for and then there's 30 to 50 second rest in between and if there's a timeout or some kind of a penalty of some kind, there's a TV commercial that's a three-minute window. Right now, breaks on TV are three minutes. Well, if you aren't fully recovered after a three- to five-second burst in three to five minutes, there's something wrong with you. And so distance running is absolutely in the wrong energy system, and we need coaches and athletes to understand that, but yet it is just screwed up across the country. People just don't get it. I know we were both fortunate enough to get the opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Bill Kramer and, you know, 
he'll be the first one to say is you got to go back to your book knowledge. You have to understand that your energy systems, you have to understand what is a buffering capacity problem? Is this a VO2 max problem? And you know, what can you change and, and what can you not? You can change your buffering capacity. Your VO2 max is, you know, largely locked in and maybe sure it could change, change a little bit, but you have to know your sport and you have to know your physiology. And that's where that's an opportunity of uh, lifelong learning to make sure that you understand it. But you, you talked about that uh, decades ago, but yet it's still an issue uh, that we see prevalent today uh, amongst coaches. I think now instead of endurance training, it's, it's pacing or striding where it's these, you know, long exaggerated runs or these, you know, slower buildups and the game of football is fast and it is violent. And to recover from that is a completely different mechanism um, than some of the long stuff. Right. Well, you know, players didn't used to, uh, uh, lift weights during the season. They they might have got started with a program in the off season, but it took a long time for people to be lifting year round. But we did it immediately, and the NC2A caught on to that and had Nebraska. We had a, a sports science research lab on our campus at that time, and Dr. Rose, Dr. Kenneth Rose oversaw it and so we got a grant to do a a study on the testing of athletes who were lifting and training on a year-round basis and so it was called something like the seasonal fluctuations of a strength and conditioning program we were one of the very first schools if anyone that was doing lifting in season uh, during the season and then in the off season, a lot of people might have been doing it at one of those, but not all, all of them. And so they uh, they actually paid me to do the the testing, and then these science, scientists evaluated the scores and uh, made me realize that we weren't doing much in the summer when the players were away from campus. So I started up a summer conditioning program where they would stay on the campus. So we really did have year-round training. They, of course, were on the campus during the season. And then in the off-season, we had a winter conditioning program. And that, that went pretty well. The, the coaches were there to help at first. Eventually, I uh, had enough assistants, strength coaches, and volunteers that the football coaches were then able to go out on the road to recruit and be gone longer. And I had the entire program winter in the winter program held by the strength coaches. Uh, and then in the summer, uh, all the strength coaches ran that as well. So we, we worked hard to get to the point where we had year round conditioning and that NC2A study kind of helped us see the value in that. And uh, I'm not sure if other schools do training in the summer or not, but that's a pretty important time to prepare for the season. Yeah. I think there's been enough evidence that shows that that, that is the critical window of loading to get the body ready for impact and trauma. And obviously every sport's different, but specifically as it relates to football, we do know that especially summer two, those final six to eight weeks, um, that is either a time where you are going to peak in your performance and get ready for a season, or you're going to dig out of the hole uh, that you may or may not have intentionally uh, created from May, Mester, and June, um, because uh, you weren't necessarily training at the training density that you needed to. Right. I might also add that I did have a, another little problem with our coaches. When we did the testing, 
if the coach recruited you, you had a good chance you ran a 4.5. If he didn't recruit you, it might be a 4.7. And I'm not accusing any particular person. But so what I did to prevent that was I have the athlete running a lane and I'd have two of the position coaches at the end of the lane doing the timing. And after everyone ran the first run, the coaches would have to rotate to a different station and then again to another station. And so that the athlete was timed by multiple coaches. Uh, if he ran three runs, he'd be tested by six different coaches. That helped, but it didn't eliminate that problem. The accuracy of a handheld stopwatch was driving me nuts. <laughs> so what'd you do about it? <laughs> well, I went to... Uh, the engineering department at the University of Nebraska. And um, there was a professor there that was willing to listen and he created electronic timing for us. Uh, it, his name was Dr. Michael Riley. Not the football coach that uh, was the NFL guy that actually came to Nebraska and was coached many, many years later. This Dr. Michael Riley was a, a researcher in the engineering department. And he came up with uh, electronic timing. And at first, our coaches hated it because it was different. <laughs> they, uh, I mean, it was accurate, but it was different. And so they had to adjust. And eventually, other schools caught on, the NFL caught on. Uh, and now I don't know of a team that there might be some people out there still doing handheld timing, but there's no reason for that. Timers are affordable now, and I'd recommend that every school, every sport, regardless of the distance, be using accurate timing. Now, I know you mentioned you use the 40, and I'm not sure what, what year we're in here, um, but I know that throughout your lectures and then throughout my time of knowing you, we found that not only is the 40, you know, okay at measuring speed in the fact that you are slow or fast, but in fact, it was the 10 that wound up becoming even more important. I, I would even go as far to say now looking at the five. So that acceleration and whether it's angles, whether it's force, whether it's speed, whether it's mechanics, is that many of our top performers, it's not only who got to the fastest speed, but who did it in the shortest amount of time. How did you guys go about finding that out? Well, we, in 1981, we uh, were able to get a space underneath the West stadium to put our weight room when, the job pool, the carpenters, electricians, and welders, those folks, they moved closer to the railroad so they'd have better access to uh, deliveries and so forth. And we got this huge, uh, about 14,000 square foot space. And so in that new uh, alignment, we put in a, we wanted to put in a 10 yard dash, but I didn't account for the slope of the roof I wasn't able to put some of the tall things I wanted to put along the wall. I couldn't put them there. So I had to rearrange the whole weight room right at the last minute to accommodate that. You know, when you're looking at a piece of paper with a floor plan on it, you can't, you don't account for the slope of the roof. So I had to, I had to put some dumbbells where I was going to use this 10 yard uh, lane to run, run far enough. I didn't have the space. So I put in a five yard run. And what we learned there was, yes, you can work on your start, your technique to come out of the blocks and how you put your hand on the timing switch or whatever. But we had a guy named Christian Peter that would dive. He would just 
run a couple steps and then dive to get a faster time. So um, to prevent that, I, th I think we, uh, we need to think about the 10 yard dash. It's a tremendous uh, distance to measure acceleration. Five yards, they start getting a little crazy on trying to get there and dive. So the 10 is something that can be done in place of the 40 yard dash or in conjunction with. You can measure the 10 as you run 40. And the reason when I was at the NSCA building in Colorado Springs for an eight year period and working with a, a lot of high schools, I tried to push the concept of timing indoors on a basketball court for 10 yards. And the reason had many reasons. One is the weather. It doesn't rain indoors and there's no wind indoors and it's not really cold indoors. And all those factors uh, cause you not to be able to test well outdoors. So if high schools want to be consistent, I recommend they go indoors and just do 10 yard dash. They don't need to do 40, we sh we've shown that. And then working with all these test scores, um, I tried to look at percentile ranks and that just wasn't getting it done for me. Um, so I got a hold of a professor at the University of Nebraska, Dr. Chris Eskridge, and uh, Mike Arthur, my top assistant uh, at the time and, and was for many, many years. We created an index. In fact, we created uh, an, an index for each test and also for the two or three lifts that we were interested in. We've since eliminated the bench press because it just does not identify talent. What do you mean by that? It's done everywhere. Well, and primarily speaking from a football perspective, you want someone that has length out on the field. You don't want alligator arms. You know, alligators have real short little arms. <laughs> if you have short arms, you have a chance to excel on the bench press, but not out on the field. You need length. And so a big bench press is not a big deal if you're really looking to have the best football player. And so after all these years of collecting test scores and test data, we've come up with just two lifts and three or four performance tests. The two lifts are the squat and the hang clean or power clean, they're interchangeable. So the squat and the clean are gonna be what you wanna measure. Uh, the performance tests, the 10 and or 40, the vertical jump and a side to tight, side to side movement called the pro agility run or five, 10, five. You run five, back 10, back five. Those tests, those tests by themselves will identify talent. Now the NBA has come up with some other tests done on a basketball court that works for them and that's fine. But if they were just rely on the tests I just mentioned, they'd still be fine. What do you say though, when people say that it's, those are football drills, that doesn't help volleyball, that doesn't help insert any other sport other than football? Well, the Nebraska's volleyball team does those exact tests I just told you. And they are very, very well recognized as one of the premier volleyball programs in the country and have been for many, many years. They've won five national championships. And uh, yesterday they just uh, signed the number one recruit in the nation. 
So they're, they're setting a good standard there. Yeah. When I, when I think about those tests, people often ask similar questions along that line. And my response is, is that all sports is played in three planes of motion. So whether it's vertically, linearly, laterally, somewhere in between. And so for any kind of sport, it's a skill executed at a certain speed, power, velocity. And I just think it's really important that people understand, you know, where you fit in the larger population. And then that's where just sometimes we get a little too sport specific too quickly. And we need to understand what we're dealing with. And, and I know you mentioned the vertical jump. Could you go on a little bit further into that? Because I know that's kind of our world where not only are you measuring that power output, which I think is what you kind of were alluding to when you think about it, but also the strategies. There's some long-term strategies. There's also some strategies and landing mechanics that if you're very powerful, uh, it doesn't give you longevity. So how do you balance that productivity versus longevity with an athlete? Well, actually, the vertical jump has a kind of a sister the horizontal jump, which is pretty much identical to measuring talent and, and explosiveness. And so if a school doesn't have a device to measure the vertical jump, with you know, one with the veins that you can identify how high they jump, and they don't want to go up against the wall with a tape measure hanging on the wall like I had to start out with, they could just put down a tape measure on the ground and measure horizontal jump and be just fine. Either one of those tests are kind of interchangeable. I, I always like the vertical jump, on, and I don't have a great reason why, um, because the horizontal jump's fine too. So either one, and some people do both, but they both tell you kind of the same thing. So either way. Yeah, I remember at Yale, we would go and line up, and it got to the point where so many people just aren't explosive. And I, and I say this not in a demeaning way or whatever, but just for division one football, the tolerances and the windows are so tight physiologically to even have a chance to compete. doesn't mean you're going to be good. It means you're less likely to stink. And so, you know, you could go at nine feet, nine, six, 10 and above, and then evaluate from there. Well, now if you can break that down and get, you know, off the veins, like you mentioned, um, you know, the displacement and the power that's helpful. And then now we've gotten to the point on the plates where we know that 85 Watts, you know, peak Watt per kilo that, you know, that that's a real number, you know, 40 is not 80. And, you know, we know we can make it a little bit better, but you start dealing with genetics here. And I think that's important for coaches to understand some things you can train and develop and others you can't. Well, one of the things that, that I like about the horizontal jump is you can use it as a drill. You can line people up on a line and everybody jump and then turn around and then everybody jump back. Or you can work on it uh, without a lot of vertical jump devices around. Right. And then you can still go to the vertical jump device on test day. But we had a player early on in my career um, who weighed about, uh, let's say, 270 pounds. And he jumped 39 and a half inches. And that generated so much force that uh, we started looking at, wow, this is, this is amazing. And so I had uh, Dr. Eskridge and Mike Arthur work on what does this mean? And uh, they came up with a performance index in addition to the strength index for the squat and the clean. And the performance index and strength index, they both take into account body weight. And so in looking at kids attending our football camps and other camps, baseball and um, basketball camps, all these kids would come onto the campus. We started testing on the, our favorite tests. And 
we end up making a performance index and a strength index out of the scores. And the formula for that is available now at boydeplic.com if someone was interested in that. But we've been using that for over 30 years. And I know you're very familiar with it. Um, and it really does separate the men from the boys if you're looking at recruiting someone. Because you want someone that has great power and great change of direction and that has the size. If it's a, a real small person, they're not going to have the leverage out on the field. Yeah, you told me once uh, once at one of the conferences talking about, you know, if you could go back in time, one of the things you would have done a little bit differently is gotten more involved with recruiting earlier on. I tend to joke, whether it's with customers and clients or, you know, former sport coaches of, you know, we are strength coaches, not magicians. You know, I cannot take a 10 inch vertical jump and turn it into 40. You know, I could, you know, ideally get it up, you know, four to six inches in four years. Maybe I can make them stronger because strength, you can, you can develop people to be strong or relatively strong. But when you get into power and you get into specifically reactivity and explosion, that's largely genetic. That's very heavily influenced by the genetic ability. And, you know, I think again, people mistake testing for trying to find the talent versus eliminating the people that just have a low likelihood of even being there. And I, I like to steal the quote from coach Belichick of your athletic ability sets your floor and your character sets your ceiling. But that being said, there are very, very clear floors in every position in every sport. And especially the, the higher the economic opportunity is for pro leagues, um, those floors tend to get higher and higher. Um, and you have to have those to even compete. Well, what we found is, like you said, the performance index, it can somewhat be kind of, uh, you're born with it, with the potential there. But what we also found is that any improvement in the strength index, so the work you do in the weight room to improve your strength index brings about an immediate improvement in your performance and your performance index. So that's why uh, coaches want those athletes to go in and lift weights because they know it's going to improve their performance for their sport. And so you really need kind of both of those indexes to work together to make sure you're working hard in the weight room and seeing improvement. Because if, if you're not seeing improvement in the weight room, guess what? Your program does not work. Well, and I think too, to your point about knowing what your improvements is, because if I do more kettlebell swings, if I do more insert, just kind of anything more, I'm getting better at lunges, you know, but I didn't see the numbers go up. You have to ask yourself, you know, it's not about an exercise or it's not about a program. It's did that program alter the individual to the yep. point where they're going to see production on the field? Well, well, then back to one of our earlier comments, if you're trying to improve in the weight room and all of a sudden your scores are going down, it's because you're going out and doing that distance running <laughs> that we talked about earlier. You need to cut that out and you'll start seeing improvement in the weight room, which will bring about improvement in your performance on the field or court. Yeah. I mean, the index really does um, open up many eyes to whether or not the development program of the athletes headed in the right direction. And I think anybody that thinks that they've got it figured out um, is probably missing an opportunity because I've never seen a program that works hundred percent of the time for every single person. It's a constant game of daily adjustments. And especially with what we know now about recovery and stress and, you know, your program, you have to be, you know, as tuned in to the individual athlete as possible. Um, and now that you have a metric to look at that, um, there's really no excuse not to have that. So, um, 
for volleyball, John Cook is uh, has won four national championships at Nebraska. And what he does there is he uses the index as a motivator. So if a volleyball girl improves 100 points on their the three tests, and he adds in a fourth test, which is called the approach jump. And he treats it just like the vertical jump uh, as equal to one of the, the other three major tests. So he's got four tests there. And any improvement of 100 points um, for an athlete gets them into a, a new T-shirt to recognize that achievement. So um, what I'm getting at is setting goals, uh, using the test scores and your indexes can be a motivator. And in order to get someone to work hard, they have to believe in what you're doing. They have to believe that it's going to help them. So I've always tried to, whether it's with a recruit or even with people that are in the program, point out where they're at, what's possible if they work hard. Like if you work hard, you're going to improve two tenths of a hundred, two hundredths of a tenth on, on your 40 yard dash in this much time. This is what you can expect in, in uh, your first year. This is what, you know, you lay it out for them. And it's amazing how many athletes come up to me years later and say, coach, you were right on the money. I did this, I did this. And that's what you told me I was going to do. And it worked, but they have to do the work, not the coach. Yeah. I had a lot of athletes would say, wow, this program's incredible. This, this worked for me, blah, blah, blah. Hey, well, you work for yourself. I gave you the roadmap. I told you what, you know, our recommendations were, but I think everybody forgets trying to develop yourself, whatever level of genetic gift you have, you are going to have to put in work to raise up your baseline. And it's just, that's the commitment to process. That's, you know, a 24, seven, 365 commitment. That's often tough for 18 to 21 year olds that live in an insta world, especially here in 2021. So what I did years ago was I, I and I started with the bench press, which I, I made a mistake there, <clears throat> but it was the favorite lift and it probably still is in high school. How much can you bench? You know, that's, that's what people ask you. And when I started, not one football player could bench press 300 pounds, which was ridiculous. But when they wanted to uh, do their best, they would call me over to the bench and I would judge their effort. And if it was perfect and they did 300, they get a t-shirt. 325 a t-shirt, 350 a t-shirt, different levels. Uh, until we got up to 400 pounds, Larry Cooley was the first 400 pound bench press, did it perfect, great. Um, I stopped doing the, uh, the t-shirt thing because we were giving out t-shirts right and left. But uh, we did have a guy bench press 500 pounds, Lawrence Pete, he was the first. And then I, I took the emphasis away from that because I, by that time, I knew this wasn't what I wanted to put my uh, my emphasis on. But uh, one time we took a, a machine, a bench press machine, and we put an easy curl bar on it. An easy curl bar puts your hands your puts your hands in like an offensive lineman for a punch, and I called that the Dave Remington bench. But anyway, we along the way in my career we. We were pretty innovative in coming up with different types of uh, equipment. The, one of the reasons was the original equipment, the original power rack that we had, the upper posts 
you know, a power rack has these up, uprights. They were only a few inches apart. And I, I learned later that's what uh, York Barbell was using for Olympic lifting. <clears throat> you would get inside there and just drive it overhead like you were doing a push jerk. Well, that doesn't work for a squat. When you squat, you have movement of the body moves a little bit forward and back, and you'd be banging, 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 banging into that thing trying to do squats. So that was one of my first innovations was to find a squat rack where it was wide enough, at least uh, 14 or 18 inches between the posts, so you could have freedom. Plus, the players are starting to get bigger. They're still only in about 250 to 70 range. They're not, now they're 350 to 370 range, but so they need to be wider yet. But uh, I happened to see a, a crew of workers outside the building I was in. They were taken out the street and they, they moved the road over about half a mile and then put in a baseball stadium there on the Nebraska campus. And that stadium has now been moved to a newer stadium and um, the field house is there now. But as they tore down the fence posts, they stacked them up along the side of the street and they were steel posts, about seven, eight feet tall. So I went out there and asked them, what are you gonna do with those posts? You know, And they said, well, we're gonna haul them off to the dump. I said, how about if I would take them? They said, you can have them. So for two six packs of beer, I could get a power rack made and maybe a bench press. So I had inclines made, benches, squat racks. And uh, of course I had, had to ask the athletic director if he would expand the weight room. So he, did he, he knocked down a wall and gave me more room and we just kept knocking down walls and getting more room and adding more equipment and we ended up uh, being a little innovative on on different things that we designed at nebraska well let, let's back up there a little bit so your inspiration came from looking at them moving the baseball field it came from a need i needed a safe way to train heavy and I'm embarrassed to what Rich Glover made 19 tackles in the game of the century, which they're celebrating the 50th anniversary this year. He made 19 tackles, and the squat rack he had was a joke. It was embarrassing. But we got it corrected. Well, it wasn't also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys also had something with the bench press where you started adjusting the height. And so I know at the Stark Museum, um, there's this kind of historical bench. I mean, was that along the same time? Could you explain that to people who maybe don't know what we're talking about? Well, uh, we had a guy named John Dutton who played for the Indianapolis Colts, and he had seven foot one inch arm span, which that's kind of more common today. There are a lot of people that have that today, but back then, uh, and remember, bench pressers have alligator arms, right? So imagine a guy with short arms sticking his arms out to the side, and then John Dutton. John Dutton's arms were seven foot one inch when he laid down to bench press they were way up in the air and so uh, it wasn't fair for him to try to and it was hard to get the lift off because you didn't just lift it down you lifted it up for him so i wrote a letter to the farmers in nebraska <laughs> and i don't know how i got a list of farmers but somewhere i got a list of the people who own farms and i asked if if anyone would donate a pair of tractor jacks. I needed two and I got six. 
they came and uh, delivered them and we're proud to do so. And we welded them into the bench press benches and we had tractor jack benches <laughs> that you could put the bar on and just adjust the height anywhere you wanted. Later, I worked with AMF and made those like a parallel bar. Do you ever see parallel bars? You have a, a locking mechanism, you unlock it and you adjust it up or down. Yep. Well, well there's a spring in there that's spring loaded. And you have to be a little careful because we put those on our bench presses and our inclines. And if you weren't careful, that spring would shoot up and hit you in the face. That was really dangerous, but we did it anyway. And uh, as long as you kept it locked down, once it was adjusted, you were okay. But if a new person came in and unlocked that, it was dangerous. So they quit making those. Well, you know, you mentioned there to the safety, that seems to be a theme. So whether it's need, innovation, um, or safety, was that the precursor to the transformer and kind of the idea on that as well? Well, the transformer, um, which was made by Rivers Metal for us, and we've made an agreement with them, they would not make it for anyone else. It had a couple features. The bar catch, say when you go to do squats, the bar, the height of the bar catch, uh, which would then put, be put on your, uh, on your back, that changes based on your height. So if you're six foot seven, it's going to be different than a five foot seven by quite a bit. And so instead of having to uh, have a power rack where you move the pins and go through a lot of work on both sides to get the bar up, take the weight off, <laughs> it was just a pain in the neck. The transformer, you push a button and the bar uh, height moves to the need for you. And then there's the second part of that is the safety level. Um, most of these racks today have some kind of a bar at this at the position where if you go too low it'll stop the bar from falling and um, the safety level then on the transformer moves with the touch of a button as well now later on i made those the bar catch and the safety level move by the use of a computer by pushing a button and identifying who you are what exercise you wanted and those would move automatically into place for you those aren't available to anyone else. Well, I, I know, uh, I know that was one of the secrets of the weight room. And, I, and again, if you haven't seen it, um, it's impressive to watch in person. And again, when people talk about some of the secret weapons, definitely, definitely, definitely um, certain schools and programs have things in place to kind of get that competitive advantage and having seen it personally, uh, that is still wild. And that thing is several decades old um, and it is still incredible today, but you probably, you know, on the flip side, you've also made a contribution um, to the larger uh, conditioning industry by something maybe uh, people have used the jammer. That was an example of something that was made in house, but then became a, a global sensation. What was the, what was the idea behind the jammer? Well, there was a time where I was uh, a free weight person and I didn't think machines could develop strength like the free weights. I've kind of changed my mind on that uh, after we created a metabolic circuit using machines, but, and we were able to get real true strength and great games there. But at the time, uh, hammer strength was in its infancy and the salesmen uh, were talking to our football coaches one of them was in Florida when our coach was in Florida recruiting athletes down there. And he said, we need to get a, a, some kind of a hammer strength machine in your weight room. And that Epley guy, he just believes in uh, 
free weights, you know, he's not interested in our machines. So the coach was my friend. I had played golf with him and he, he was a good guy. And he says, you know, this salesman might help me down there with recruits. To, you know, if, if, uh, you know, get me might get my foot in the door with a couple schools down here. If I, if you put one of those machines in your weight room, you don't have to use it. Just put it in there and, you know, now help me out. I said, okay. So they sent me a double chest press where you sat down on a machine and you pressed it like a bench press, but your back was more vertical than it. You weren't laying flat like a bench press. You were sitting up a double chest press. Okay. And so about two weeks later, the salesman calls me and says, how do you like the double chest press? And I said, it's broken. He goes, it's broken. I said, yeah, yeah, we cut the seat off. And, uh, and now it's too short because you, when you stand up, it's too short. <laughs> he cut the seat off. <laughs> yeah. And so he says, uh, all right, I'm going to have the owner call you. So Gary Jones calls me, the guy who, Arthur Jones's son, Gary Jones, who invented hammer strength equipment. And he flies me out to their factory and wants to know why I did that. And I said, you don't play the game sitting down. You play the game standing up, and if you you want to push forward, that's fine. But you got to have your feet on the ground when you do. He said, "How about if we make one for you?" I said, "Well, this one's too short now that we cut the seat off." Uh, he's, and so he made one custom to what I wanted, and and sold a bunch of them to folks, and it helped quite a few people. Well, in the process of using that jammer, then uh, each arm is independent although you use, you lift both of them at the same time. What we did was start playing with it and using one arm at a time and getting rotational action. So now you got force into the ground as you rotate and extend up and you could do the other side too. So I told them about that. So they ended up creating what's called push pull machines. And those were pretty popular too. The problem with their push pull machines, even though I like them, they're a little short. They're for normal people, not athletes that are recruited because they're so tall. And so what they really, someone needs to do is, is create a push-pull machine that's actually adjustable in height. And that's not happened yet. So somebody out there listening, there's your opportunity. Well, and I know that with those pieces of equipment, you, you had that, that Husker line. And so when you went down and you had the circuit, you had the dedicated area, um, in the gym for people to come through without a, without question, um, that probably aided in the development of that area as well, which again, for people that, um, haven't, haven't followed the history here, this circuit, uh, was legendary. It's been talked about, it's been written about, um, used it personally with the teams that I've worked with and, and it is, it's magical and that's what it is. And down the line, and whether you have these equipments or, uh, whatever the innovation of the training came from the equipment. And sometimes it's, um, it can go the other way as well. Could you talk a little bit about some of those things that you used to kind of really fine tune that and what the results were on there? Well, you're talking about the metabolic circuit. <clears throat> and, um, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, Dr. Bill Kramer, who's a, a good friend of mine and, and yours, he was headed to Wyoming from where he lived and he was going to go there to work on his PhD. He stopped in Lincoln, Nebraska to visit with me. 
And at that time, we'd expanded our weight room a little bit, but we still didn't have enough space. So we put another weight room in. We were in the North Stadium. We put another weight room in the South Stadium, and it was full of machines. It was a circuit room. And I liked the circuit because I remember I told you I taught all those classes for 17 years. What I did there was use circuit training concepts there because there's so many students and they had to move around to each stations. And so, and they weren't linemen and needed to be big and strong. They needed more of a fitness type approach. So we had a circuit train room and I was going to do a circuit myself and Bill joined me. Well, about killed him because I didn't have quite the right work rest ratio. And I was just experimenting, trying to find something that would build muscle. And it was so demanding that we both about died doing it. He said, I'm gonna work on this. So he went back and I think he did some of his PhD work studying the effects of that work rest ratio. And he came back and he says, I got it. And he gave me the magic formula. So I sat down with Mike Arthur and I said, we got to figure out a way to introduce this to the football players who need to put on muscle. <clears throat> because Bill Kramer is saying this is going to put on muscle immediately, but it's going to be very demanding. People might throw up and it might be, um, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be great. So how are we going to introduce this to the football players? So the strongest guy on the team was Kevin Coleman. He was a shot putter and he also was a weightlifter and uh, he was a big, strong, handsome guy and probably about a junior at the time and was national champion in the shot put. So we asked him if he would stand up in front of the football team at the start of winter conditioning where, where we be 180 people in the auditorium and listening to whatever we're going to do. And so I introduced Kevin <clears throat> as, and they kind of knew who he was because they'd see him in the weight room. Some of them, of course, knew him better than others. But anyway, he's, he got up there and I introduced the opportunity to try this new program out. And we were looking for 30 players to volunteer. But I said, you have to do it for six weeks and you can't drop out. If you agree to do it, you're in or you're not in. And you can't just go a week because it's going to be really hard. He got up there and he said, you can't handle this program. That's all they needed to hear. A track guy telling them they couldn't handle it. So we got our 30 guys. And those kids made more progress in the next six weeks than, the, than some other kids made in their four-year career. It was magical. And that program's been followed by hundreds of schools since. <clears throat> yeah, we, we use that. And I know we would typically see, you know, numbers that you just, you can't even think of. And, you know, the recovery becomes important. The training becomes important, <clears throat> but pretty much between 30,000 pounds and 50,000 pounds um, of tonnage, you're going to see massive changes. And as long as you keep an eye on your ankle, <clears throat> as long as they're prepared. And I think that's important to remember is that, you know, yes, uh, I think it was described as the, the nuclear bomb of the weight room. Uh, you also don't want it to blow up in your face. So making sure that individuals, you know, do it, you know, with one set, do it with two in the little red book that you guys put out back in the day. Um, it talked about that and the importance and, and realize some people 
can't do it or they're deconditioned. And that is an advanced program that really, you know, you have a few times you can run it with diminishing returns. You can't run it every day. You can't run it every month. You have basically this one block to kind of set the foundation, lay the rebar, pour the concrete that then you're going to build your strength and power and speed on uh, in the summer. But if done right, um, highly, highly effective. Now, I wanted to ask you, if you were to go back in time, when we think about athleticism and athletic talent, would you have accounted for the muscle mass and or the twitch? Because I know some of the stuff that we're looking at on the force plates now is there might be an individual that's just never trained, got good bones, very twitchy, just needs the right program. And maybe they don't have the highest power output yet, but maybe they're quick and they're elastic. Would you put muscle in that same category as the tests? And then obviously you've always put emphasis on muscle development, but depending on the amount of fibers they have, um, they may be too far away or they might need to play a new position. Have you ever thought of that? Well, everybody's a little bit different and people are born with uh, a certain amount of potential and in, in whether it's strength or power. I suppose if I was a recruit, if I was looking for a recruit, I would look for one that has natural power and then I can add strength. It seems to be easier to add strength and improve strength. In power, you either are born with it and can develop it or you're born with not very much and you're not going to develop it much. Right. So you want to recruit kids with natural power. You want to, if you just tested the vertical jump and took all the kids with the highest vertical jump and let everybody else go on their way, you'd probably be in pretty darn good shape. That's very quickly. You see, especially now for football, particularly the highest level is so many, so many orders of magnitude outside the normal human being. The game's gotten so big. It's gotten so fast, so strong. And that's not even, again, saying you're going to be good. It just puts you in the conversation. And, and I, th- I think back to, you know, you mentioned you did a lot of this kind of data collection. You did this testing. There's that famous picture, I believe it was 2002, when the weight room got updated and you have the platform and, you know, you have it up in the front, but then you also have this little computer off to the side. And I noticed that there's some force plates in there next to the transformer. Yes. And that, that again, still is something even today in 2021, we're starting to get consumers that get it. People understand the, po- the, the, the importance of power and how to measure it. What were you thinking back in the day and what system did you have that you were, you were measuring those plates and what were you looking at back then? Well, we were open to ideas and there was a, a professor on the campus that was into force plates and that involved um, a piece of metal going up over the top with a string hanging down attached to the bar to measure bar speed. Everything was in its infant stages. And Mike Arthur and Brian Bailey, uh, Brian was one of our top assistants and very innovative guy. And those two guys were looking at that information, but then the professor moved on and that kind of fell apart. So even though we were 20 or 25 years ahead of our time on that, we didn't pursue that, but it did cause us to look at being more explosive. So we started doing push jerks and things like that to be more explosive. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is, is racks, because we were doing these push jerks in the rack. Like I said earlier, the original racks by York Barbell were so skinny that it didn't work. And I wanted to make racks that you... You don't, we didn't do pull-ups. We didn't do a lot of that overhead stuff. So we didn't need a rack that went eight or nine foot high like they were 
they're, they're trying to sell everybody these tall racks. So we made a rack that just went high enough for bench press. And we call it the Husker rack. And that kind of caught on. But then I realized that we could take the front post off and eliminate it and just have two posts there, not four. Because we figured out how to adjust the bar catch on the two posts that were left. And that became the half rack. And that now is the most popular rack in the world. You see them everywhere. And they have different attachments to them. And it's amazing how the half rack has impacted lifting. What do you think is the future of that? I know currently in your position, you're doing a little bit of consulting. I know your mind's always working. You know, you looked ahead um, at the, at, when you were coaching, you looked ahead at the times and, and created some of these new things. What are some of the areas that you think need to improve at the rack or even kind of at well, the manufacturing level? You know, what's funny is uh, my number two assistant, I said, went to SMU, but then UCLA hired him right away. He wasn't at SMU very long. And at UCLA, he put in, let's say, eight power racks. That was a different concept at the time and different than my philosophy. But yet that is a philosophy that is across the country now. Middle schools, high schools. In Nebraska, almost every high school has at least five power racks. It might be half racks. It might be full, four post racks. But the concept there is versatility. If you have a power rack, you can do almost anything in it. You can put a bench in it or an incline in it, or you can just lift, or you can squat, or you can, you can do a clean in it if it's wide enough. So people are looking at versatility, and I can't argue with that. But that's not my philosophy. My philosophy is either old school or dumb or whatever, but it's different. My philosophy is that you go into a weight room to take advantage of the supervision, not the facility. So you have a supervisor in an area that knows what they're doing. And that guy is there with the equipment he needs to teach you how to be the best you can in that part of the room. If it's an explosive area, he's got what he needs and he's the expert and you do and learn how to be the best you can in explosive stuff with the equipment he has. You go to another area and it's maybe it's a squat guy and he's got different apparatus, squat racks, maybe it's a power rack. But each of these areas has the specialty equipment you need to get the job done. It's not the same in every part of the room. You go over here to do bench and you go over there to do squat and you go over there to do cleans. You don't do it all in the same type of a rack. But I'm going to lose out on that one because the other philosophy has kind of taken over so what you're going to see in weight rooms is racks and racks and racks and racks and racks well when and they very poor supervision well when when you say that that kind of mechanistic approach it, it reminds me a lot of some of the assembly line of where you have a specific goal and a specific target and i do know i understand from the being able to have the versatility per square foot because some places have smaller gyms so the idea is yes. that you can do more in the given space but i like how you hit home on that, you know, supervision, I would just call it in general, just the, uh, the professionalism, the profession has grown quite a bit. So when you started there, there was none. And then you had this idea of making the NSCA 
which would be an organization that people would go to and it would act as a kind of a bridge between, you know, the theory and practice um, to now where it's, you know, a globally uh, known uh, organization. And then I think also too, as well, the CSCCA um, was another organization that kind of came about of it. And so we have this push for certification. We're not licensed. It's not an industry that's licensed, but without question, if we're going to move forward financially for people so that people with masters that want to be strength coaches aren't below the poverty line. So people aren't working 80 hours a week so that there's value in our industry. There needs to be supervision that matters and accountability. And I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts kind of on going back to the origin that you had mentioned. It was all about speed. It was about objective measures. And that's why you kept your job. Do you foresee that helping the industry? Do you see it moving forward? Or are we just going to continue to see more education? Because at the end of the day, how you perform on the floor, how you train your athletes, um, that should be an objective measure. And, and currently right now, I don't think there's any agreement on what certification and or approach is the best. Well, I think the NSCA, who has now certified over 65,000 strength coaches, is a little unique in that they, they have the research to back what they're saying. The CSCCA is a little bit more hands-on and a little bit more strength coaches on the floor of the weight room. And what I would like to see is to combine those two. Uh, the CSCCA has something where they, if, in order to be certified by that organization, you have to come before a group of certified strength coaches there and answer questions and demonstrate that you know what you're doing. That hands-on process right there is kind of missing in the NSCA. The NSCA has the books, the research, the, I mean, just tremendous super brains behind what they say, but they're missing that hands-on training. And not completely. I mean, they have little pockets here and there, clinics and so forth, but it's not. What I'd like to do is somehow combine the two to where you either do one first and then the other one or reverse it, whichever order. So that maybe you go to the CSCA and demonstrate that you have the hands-on training and then you show that you're smart enough to do it. Or you show you're smart enough to do it with the NSA exams and then show you you know how to do it with the CSCA. Those two things need to kind of come together, I think. So where we at now is I'm a member of both, have been from the beginning of both. And a lot of other people also, they have to pay money to both to join all the time. And it could be just one. If we would just get together and make it one. Yeah. And, and I think too, that something like that has to happen because right now there's an influx of talent that's leaving. So if we see there's a lot of talent leaving the college markets going into the military has really picked up on this idea of strength and conditioning. You see the private sector, obviously, um, even in the technology sector, we've, we've mentioned the company future a couple of times on previous podcasts, you know, it's a, it's a unique environment now. And if just, you go back to our roots, um, if you want to keep talent, there needs to be an incentive plan. I also wonder too, if the industry's finally gotten to the point where you need your classical education, you need your mentorship, but then you also kind of need that fellowship. And so very similar to the medical model, you go to med school and you go to your, you know, your residency and you go kind of go through those things because especially with technology, I, I can line up anybody I can take, say, okay, you know, give me your team, 
Okay. We're going to put them on the lasers. We're going to put them on the force plate. What are you doing? Okay. We're going to work on speed. Well, at the end of 12 weeks, if you're not faster, well that, and I have, you know, two different coaches, I'm going to pay the coach that can do their job because I think finally now people are starting to understand. Yeah. You know, you put on muscle, go to the DEXA machine, you put on 350 pounds of muscle on your team. The other person puts 130, you can start to give objective measures for coaches. Um, so I, I agree with you that the, the field is going to have to figure out a way to unite um, because otherwise we could just stall and we're going to continue to see people with masters and, you know, other degrees making 10 grand, 20 grand a year. And that's just not a good long-term strategy, especially with the way sports have evolved. Well, the one good thing is the leadership of both organizations are respectful to each other. They do work together on a few items whenever the NC2A needs something, they, they, but they could do more, I believe. And they're all good people. In fact, the three leaders of the CSCCA right now, the three people are in the powerful positions, are also members of the NSCA. So I think that's a good sign. And um, so maybe that's a good first step in getting uh, eventually to, to be one unit. But it's been, a, it's been a good road. I'm very proud to have done the things that I've done. I've had some tremendous help along the way. Over a hundred strength coaches have uh, been mentored at Nebraska and I'm proud of every one of them. Well, for those that can't make it to Nebraska or haven't had a chance to meet you in person and they're listening to this at home or in their car and they're excited, they're fired up, they've taken their first exercise science class, maybe they're an undergrad or they've just gotten their CSCS, what words of uh, wisdom would you give them or things to think about? Because obviously the field is ever changing, but there's got to be some core tenets that, you know, someone who's new and starting out should kind of think about as they go forward in their career. Well, I have a motto. The great ones adjust. And every day I say that motto five or six or 25 times a day, because life is full of adjustments and Things aren't always what you think they are, but you have to adjust to what they are. And you might have a bad professor, or you might have a car wreck, or you might, I mean, who, who knows what's going to happen to you in, in the, throughout the day. But if you can uh, kind of keep your bearings and adjust to what you're dealing with, um, you'll come out on the other side feeling pretty good about yourself. Well. As always, Coach, it has been wonderful taking the time to talk. Um, for anyone that wants to reach out to you or get a hold of you, I know currently you've got a couple other projects uh, going on, but I'm sure you could find time for individuals that are interested. What's the best way to get a hold of you or, or reach out and connect? Uh, my email is boydeptley.com. And uh, they could probably just write to me. Yep. So just go straight to the website sure. if you have any questions. And uh, Coach would be happy to, to talk on any number of topics. So again, Coach Epley, thank you so much. Appreciate everything. And uh, we'll be in touch soon. And we all really appreciate you taking the time. Tom, my, my email is actually, uh, that was my website. My email is actually boydepley at mac.com. But you can also get there at the website, boydepley.com. Sorry. No worries. Everyone, we'll put those in the show notes. And we, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining the lab. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye.